with your name on it. You believe that? God's got a blessing with, with our names on it. Thank you, worship team. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, gracious Lord, creator of all mankind, one who looked out over nothing and spoke and nothing became something, one who turned darkness into light and one who created all things by a simple word. And the one who looked out over that creation and said, it is good. We thank you for being that God. Praise you, Lord, that you have a blessing with our individual names on it. That you have prepared for us, and we thank you. Whatever that is, we don't know what that is, but whatever it is, Lord God, we are appreciative. Whatever you have in store for us. Thank you. Now, Lord, my prayer is that, as always, it would be all of you, none of me, that you would increase as I decrease. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. Y'all look y'all waiting on me to say something. <laughs> Are you wondering if I have something to say? <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> um, you'll recall that on last week, I made a feeble attempt to tackle what has been characterized as, been characterized by some as the hardest chapter in the Bible. Uh, in fact, Romans chapter 9, which we covered on last week, is avoided frequently, uh, avoided more frequently than it is ever taught or preached. Uh, it is purposely and intentionally oftentimes looked over. Uh, for instance, Alexander McLaren, a noted preacher of England, in his commentary entitled Expositions of the Holy Scriptures, has 98 pages in his commentary on Romans chapter 8. But when he approaches Romans chapter 9, there's nothing. As you'll recall, there is uh, somewhat of a reason for this uh, caution uh, as dealing, in dealing with chapter 9. In, in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul broaches the subject of election, which is a touchy subject. And also, uh, in, 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 in talking about that, he covers God's sovereign choice. As he writes, you remember in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, he says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, or uh, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Last week we talked about God's sovereignty. This week we talk about man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. And so I shared with you on last week that God chooses and elects. And somehow when he does that, only as he can, he incorporates faith into the whole thing. Not sure how that works, but that's what he does. And every man is held responsible for the choice he made so that no man can stand before God and claim that he got there all by himself. After, after looking at all of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, it should leave all of us with at least one relevant question. Many of you have more than one, but you ought to have at least one. At least one question should be, should be burning inside of you as you look at all of what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. The question you should be asking, the question all of us should be asking in light of that is this. How should I, a believer, respond to Romans chapter 9? Another way to put that is what should I do? What should we do? As we complete the study of Romans 9, as we look at what Paul says there, what is it that we should do in light of what he says? Uh, the reality, the sad reality, is that the response from the believer could be one, sometimes is one, of apathy, uh, disinterest, and lethargy. Simply put, it means that sometimes the response to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 leads the believer to think that uh, there's nothing that we should do. We should just become lethargic uh, and apathetic and disinterested in those that don't know Jesus. And so that is not the proper response. So, in an attempt to avoid those negative responses, Paul writes chapter 10. He writes chapter 10 to discuss and deal with man's responsibility. Man, what is man? What is, what is the believer's role? What, what's our responsibility? Uh, what is our call to action? Because scripture all throughout wouldn't be scripture if it didn't call us to some kind of an action. And Paul writes chapter 10 to do just that, to call us to an action and to reveal to us and to confirm in us what our responsibility is in light of Romans chapter 9. So then, regardless of how one feels about the truth of chapter 9, man still has responsibility in God's redemptive plan. And Paul begins to share that with us in verse 1 of chapter 10. You know that we have a place. We have a role. We have uh, a place in God's redemptive. God has this grand plan for the world, and all of us that are part of his family have a place in that plan. And Paul begins to reveal what our role is in that plan, starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 10. 
And, and, and first thing he shares with us before we even read that verse is this. We as believers must develop and maintain a burden to see people saved. Because leaving chapter 9, you might think, you don't, you should, there's no need for us to have this burden. Right? Paul clears that up. Like he did earlier, he clears that up in verse 1. Here's what he says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 10. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking about Israel, is that they may be saved. It is his burning burden and desire that Israel would be saved. Even in light of what he shared in chapter 9. I like what uh, Augustine says. Augustine says this, hence as far as concerns us who are not able to distinguish those who are predestined from those who are not. You're not able to, to distinguish that, are you? Somebody answer me. <laughs> we, ought, we ought on this very account to will all men to be saved. Isn't that right? Because I don't know. So, so my burning desire, my will on the inside should be for those that I encounter that don't know Jesus, I should develop and maintain and express outwardly my burden for them. Uh, this verse, verse 1 of Romans chapter 10, uh, it echoes Paul's anguish uh, from chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And you'll recall in those verses, Paul says this, uh, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I am in anguish. I would rather forsake my relationship with Christ if it would help them to have one. This is how burdened Paul is on behalf of Israel, the people who have fallen, some of the people of Israel who have fallen out of favor with God, who are, who are separated from him. And as I also shared last week, many of the Jews were enemies to the gospel and out of the way of salvation. For this, Paul had great heaviness and continual sorrow on their behalf. Paul's anguish stems from the fact that he is, you know, the, as you know, the great apostle to the Gentiles. Yet, and even in spite of that, he is a Jew himself. And one of the great, uh, one of, um, uh, one with, he is a Jew with great love for his people. Hence, he has this deep emotion as he deals with the issue of their rejection of the gospel. It bothers him that they have not received the gospel. It bothers him. So let's look at some passages of Scripture that should challenge us to be burdened in the same way as Paul. Because there are, there are some verses in Scripture. Uh, let me rephrase that. All the Scripture is still true. Not some verses, but all the Scripture is still true, isn't it? That's the place where you're supposed to answer. 
So, so, so we, we, you know, I kind of like, I'm a call and response preacher sometimes. And so today we're going to be call and response a little bit. So when, when, it, when I ask you something that seemed like it might, uh, <laughs> might, 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 might be looking for an answer, Martha, would you answer me? Would you? I mean loud. Let me know you're here. <laughs> Amen. All right. <laughs> Loosen up a little bit. It's going to be all right. It's not going to be as tight as last week, I promise you. But Scripture, all of Scripture is still true. Do you believe that? Yeah. All right. That's a whole lot better. Matt, uh, for instance, Matthew 9, 35 through 38 is still true. It's in the Scripture. It's still true. This is what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the cords, uh, he, I'm sorry, the crowds, he had, thank you, he had compassion for them because they were har- harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, here it goes, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send, labor, send out laborers into his harvest. That passage of Scripture is still true. That the harvest, even today, is still plentiful, right? Isn't it? But the laborers are few, and Jesus says there, and he still says today, that we, that, that we should have a desire to, be, to go forth as laborers into the harvest. It's still true. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is still true. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Scripture says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. That's still true, isn't it? Matthew 28, 18 18 through 20, which we know is the Great Commission, is still true. And it says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, it is an imperative. Go, therefore, and as you go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those verses, those passages are still true. So because they're still true, we should have a burning burden on the inside of us to win the lost. I like what Spurgeon says. I shared this with you last week. I'm going to share it with you again. Uh, he says, uh, he says something that we must declare along with him and Paul, because I believe Paul, although Paul uh, was around long before Charles Spurgeon, I believe this was the spirit that Paul had. This is what Spurgeon says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. We should have a desire, a burden for the lost. Not only that, that is our call to action. Not only that, Paul says this too. uh, We must explain the need for a Savior. So as we go and do this, part of what we must do is deal with misinformation, deal with uh, the absence of knowledge, the presence of zeal, but the absence of knowledge. And there was this going on. 
to the recipients of Paul's letter. So we have to explain why we're doing what we're doing, the need for a Savior. Look at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, verse 2 and 3 says, For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Uh, Paul says something interesting. He says, as I just alluded to, that they have this zeal for God, this passion for God. But it was, it was misguided, misdirected. It, it was, it was, it was zeal. So it's, it's good to have passion, but that passion needs to be informed. That passion needs to be informed with truth, right? Because passion that's not informed with truth uh, leads us in the wrong direction. And Israel was guilty of this. They had this passion. They wanted to be there. They, they sought to be there, but they were misinformed and misguided. The Jews and their desire to please God by their works totally missed the truth that God is pleased through faith alone. And not by works, right? It's what Hebrews 11.6 reminds us of when it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently, the King James says, seek him. Right? That, that, that's, what, that's what it looks like. He's not interested in what we do. He's not interested in our outward works. Right? It's not about that. But the Jews were, were misguided, misinformed, uh, and didn't realize that true righteousness can never be produced by the works of the flesh. It can never be produced by the works of the, of the flesh because the flesh is totally corrupt and incapable of producing anything righteous that will be accepted by God. It's what Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 64 and 6 when he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We are unable to please God by our works. We are un unable to be declared righteous because of our works. Israel thought they could please God by keeping the law. And, in fact, if they, if they would have been able to keep it, they could have pleased God. But the fact of the matter is, neither they nor us are able to do that. We're un incapable of doing that. They failed to see that they could never keep the law and that real righteousness is awarded to those who simply look to God by faith and trust him in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross. This was the example left to them by Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous uh, because the scripture says in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so they're reminded of this. And then in verses 4 and 5, boy, uh, 4 and 5 say this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Jesus did what the law could never do. He makes those who trust him by faith righteous. It just happens when we trust him by faith, we're made righteous. We are, righteousness is imputed on us. We are, we are declared righteous even though we're not. 
We could never, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever keep the law just along with the people of Israel. They couldn't do it. We can't do it. Uh, and, and, and so if we could, we could please the Lord. But since we can't, we need Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life and died in the place of every sinner. He fulfilled the just demands of the law and set us free from it. He fulfilled it. And so because of what he did, we don't have to do it ourselves. He provides, Jesus that is, provides full and free righteousness for everyone that will trust him by faith. Anyone who will trust him by faith will have this righteousness. For 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did for us. Salvation and righteousness are given to those who trust Jesus by faith. Paul's consideration is that salvation can be found in the finished work of Jesus alone, not by righteousness. And so one of the things that we are called to do as a result of Romans chapter 9 is explain this to the lost. Ones explain the need for a savior, right? We have to have a burden for the lost. And in having that burden, we are responsible for explaining how all this works as best we can. And one of the, one of the things we have to explain is that your righteousness is not enough because your righteousness is limited to what you're able to do through works. And that won't suffice because our righteousness is as a filthy garment before God. And only the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross can make atonement for us that we might be seen as righteous in the eyes of a just God so that he can declare that the case against us that is a valid case has been dismissed for all of eternity. So And so we have to equip ourselves. Uh, in light of Romans chapter 9, we have to equip ourselves to fight the fight of those who are misinformed about how they receive righteousness. Those that may have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Our responsibility, mankind, the saved uh, uh, part, part of mankind's responsibility, those of us that are saints, those of us that are, that are saved, have this responsibility to share the need for a Savior. But then also we have this responsibility to, we must explain how to be right with God. How to be right with God. It's in verses 6 through 13. And in verses 6 through 13, Paul writes this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, uh, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and, and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hmm. We have the responsibility in God's redemptive plan uh, to uh, explain how it is that one is made right with God. How to be right with God. Paul quotes in this passage in verses 6 and 7 from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's saying that one needs, that no one needs to look to heaven for signs or to the earth for signs. Just as no one has to go to heaven to bring down the law, Jesus has already come down from heaven. Just as no one has to search the seas to find the way, Jesus has come to make and to be the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the point what in, in, this, in this interesting exchange, this interesting uh, illusion in uh, what Paul alludes to in 6 and 7, talking about going up to heaven, going down uh, to the depths of the earth. It, the, the point is simple. It, it seems confusing, but here's the point. The point is this. No personal effort is required. Jesus has done it all. In other words, I, if you could ascend to heaven, Right? That's not what you need to do. If you could descend to the depths of the earth, that's not what you need to do. Uh, because what we think, well, our thought process is uh, like, like, like the people who, who attempted to build the tower. Our process is if I could do something, if, if my human uh, uh, abilities would allow me to do something, then that would be enough. If I could just reach up to heaven, if I could get that high, if I could go to the depths, if I could do that, then I could be right with God. But Paul says it's not about anything that depends on what you're able to do because what you're able to do is limited. It stops at trusting Christ. That's all that's required. That's how you are, that's how you are made right with God. It's not about doing anything like that. And in 8 and 10, Paul says here, that entrance, 8 through 10 rather, entrance into salvation is as close as one's own heart. Everything needed that we need to be right with God is present within us. All one needs to do is to go about it God's way. Go about it God's way. What is that way? Paul says it, 9 and 10. It, it, the order is flipped. And it flips back around in 10, but he says, confess with, the, with our mouth, believe in our heart. Really, we know that belief in the heart happens first, right? And, and so that's the way to be made right with God. Believe the heart was believed to be the center of all thought, the home of the will, the deepest and most sacred part of man. Paul is saying that to be saved, a person must place his absolute trust in the finished work of Christ. Paul wants lost men to know that if they will be saved, they must believe in the completed work of Jesus with all their being and surrender to his lordship. It's one thing to believe in his completed work. It's a totally different thing to surrender to his lordship. Confess with thy mouth, believe in thy heart, Jesus is Lord, right? Confess thy mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord with the capital L, Jesus Christ. It's totally different to believe and than it is to submit to his lordship because it's difficult. Lordship means uh, that he controls. 
that we submit, right? That he tells us what to do and we obey, right? That's what lordship is. Lordship is what we have to submit to. Uh, the idea in this being that we are to trust what he did on the cross and at the tomb and trust that alone for salvation. Uh, so we, when we read this, we tend to think that, that there's two different things going on here. But I submit to you that it's all kind of the same thing. Confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart are not actually separate actions. They are actually two sides of the same coin uh, of real faith. One, one produces the other. What do I mean by that? I mean, what I mean by that is when there's belief in the heart, it'll produce confession of, from the mouth. Right. And so it's not a formula. It's not. So we, we don't have to stand you and walk you through this formula, because when there is genuine belief in the heart, it'll manifest itself through the mouth and through the outside and through your actions and all that. The key is if there is when there is genuine belief that happens in the heart, then all kinds of evidence will show up on the outside. One of those will be that the way you talk will change. The things you say will change. The things you glorify will change. The things you are involved in will change. When things are put in proper order, then all, thing, all other things will fall into place. Scripture says this about what happens in the heart and how it manifests itself through the mouth. Luke 6.45 says this about that. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You know what that, you know what that means? Whatever's happening on the inside will come out on the outside. It's hard, so, so we've become kind of masters at trying to hide who we really are on the inside. But I, I promise you, that you can only hide it for so long. And at some point along the way, what, what you really feel on the inside in your heart will show up on the outside. It'll show up through your speech, but it'll show up in other ways as well. And Paul here simply says that when there is... So remember, we started this with how to be right with God, and we have to explain that. Part of our responsibility as believers in light of chapter 9 is that we have to explain how to be right with God. Here's how you explain it. There has to be belief in the heart. And when there is belief in the heart, it will manifest itself through the mouth. And so your mouth will confess Jesus. It's not two separate things. It's all one thing together. I don't really know how it works. All I know is that it happened to me. Somebody say amen. If it happened to you, you should say amen right here because I don't know what happened to me, but when it happened to me, my speech changed. And in that moment, something came out of my mouth that had never come out of my mouth before. Maybe I had said something similar to that, but when I said it before, it wasn't sincere. But in that moment, I remember the time when it happened. In that moment, something just exploded from the inside of me that was unlike anything that I'd ever said in my life. And it was different than anything I'd ever said in my life because I felt it all through my spirit. The Lord had, had changed me. And Paul says, Paul says, 
that our job, our responsibility, I don't want to call it a job, our responsibility, our role in God's redemptive plan is to have a burden for those that are lost, is to explain to them the need for a Savior, and then to explain to them how to be right with God. Belief happens, which causes confession, because from the abundance of the heart. So Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, if there's evil in there, it'll come out too, right? So you can't hide it. He says, whatever is in there, if it's good, it'll come out. If it's evil, it'll come out. Paul simply says the same thing in another way on another subject. He simply says, if there is genuine belief in the heart, it'll come out. It'll come out. Uh, verses 11 through 13 say this on the same su subject, how to be right with God. 11 through 13 says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here Paul quotes two Old Testament texts. Isaiah 28, 16 and Joel 2, 32. He quotes these to spell out two fundamental characteristics of the gospel. These characteristics of the gospel are not only fundamental, they are also uh, the very elements of the gospel uh, which made the gospel repulse, repulsive to the Jews. It's the very elements of the gospel that the Jews didn't like, the ones that were not uh, a part of God's family. These are the two primary reasons why the Jews would have none of Jesus and none of the gospel he and his apostles proclaimed. Here they are, number one, righteousness by faith alone and not by works. They didn't like that. They couldn't understand that. They couldn't deal with that. And then secondly, secondly the universality of the gospel, which means that uh, it, it was not just for the Jews. It was also for the Greeks. It was also for the Gentiles. It was, also, it was for those who would believe. And they stumbled. Remember Romans chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, uh, talks about the stumbling stone, and they stumbled over this stumbling stone that was put before them. The stone, it was the stone, the same stone that the builders rejected. His name is Jesus. They couldn't, they could not comprehend, they could not make sense of it. And so, our responsibility is to explain how to be right with God. And then lastly, we have this responsibility. It's covered in verses 14 through 17. It's the responsibility um, to continuously proclaim so they can hear. We must. We must never stop proclaiming so that they can hear. Notice that the emphasis in this passage is on them or they and hearing. Uh, they is used eight times in just these four verses. And then heard or hearing is used five times in these four verses. Uh, so the they, who are the they? Who are the they that Paul references in these verses? The they in these verses likely refers to all people. But it probably also continues the accusation against in Israel made earlier. So... For us, the day is everybody, right? 
Uh, we must continually, continuously proclaim so they, everybody who doesn't, doesn't know Jesus, can hear. Uh, after uh, proclaiming God's word, um, we have to proclaim it to everyone. Uh, the they uh, in these verses uh, helps us to understand who it is that we should be proclaiming to. It's everybody. And then uh, God's gracious offer is in Christ, and that's what we should proclaim. Paul confronted the natural questions that arise after he said what he just said. God's promise of salvation to everyone who calls on him. He says that in verse 13. This begins this process of these questions that will come after that. So then, he says, how then can they call on the one who they have not believed in? Believing, in turn, is based on hearing, and hearing is based on someone preaching. And how can they preach unless they are sent? This includes all believers. And it's not just talking about proclamation from a pulpit. So I, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm not the only one in this room responsible for proclamation. Everybody here is responsible to proclaim. Paul's talking about all of us. He says all of us have, how can, how can they hear without somebody to proclaim to them? And, 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 and the preacher, uh, the preacher that is the preacher in the church may not be around when you meet brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so at Walmart. You need to have a word in your heart. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I know the word of God enough to proclaim it to anybody at any time, whether I've been called to preach or not, because the Lord changed my life. And when he changed my life, he gave me a testimony. He, he gave me a word to share with everybody. And because of that, I'm responsible, responsible to proclaim to them. Those are the, uh, that are without. How can they preach? lest they be sent. You know, in the African-American church, we use that all the time. I don't know about everybody else, but we, we use it kind of in, in a bad way <laughs> to call out those that went and weren't sent. <laughs> Some of y'all ain't never heard that before. <laughs> I just thought I'd drop that on you. That's kind of like the boo thing, Chris. You remember the boo, so Chris, I ain't never heard that. But there's one you probably never heard either. Some went but wasn't sent. But I want to clear that up because we use that to single out and point out those that preach from the pulpit and that those that we feel like just went <laughs> and weren't sent. But I want to share with you that Paul's not just talking about the preacher in the church. He's talking about all of us have this responsibility to be a proclaimer to those who don't know Jesus. And uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 7 concerning the eagerness of the bearers of the good news. Those who bear it, he says, have beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. Hmm. That is, their message that they bring is welcome. It's those that are 
receiving it, welcome it. That's what he means by beautiful feet. He quotes from Isaiah 52, 7, the messenger in that passage announced to Judah that God had ended their exile in Babylon. But Paul applied Isaiah 52, 7 to the Jews of his day to whom the gospel was being given. He says to those that bring it. Those that see them bringing it will see them as having beautiful feet because they welcome this message, those that receive it. And so in 18 through 21, it says that Israel heard, maybe claimed not to understand, and surely disobeyed. So, right, we think, well, what about the people that hear it and disobey it and don't understand it? And don't? That's not our concern, Right? It's not our concern because some people do the same thing in this day they did in verses 18 through 21. Israel, did, they heard it. They claimed some that they didn't understand it, and uh, some of them disobeyed it. We shouldn't concern ourselves with that. Our responsibility is to keep proclaiming anyway, no matter what and how it's received. Uh, I want to I wanna close with this, with this poem. It's called My Call by Clinton Herring. It says this, I walk a path from God the call to stand up straight, to stand up tall. Unworthy am I to be his man, to bring his word to all I can. My hands were covered with sins for sure. What load of weight, what curse to endure. An infinite God, a finite man, a stench to him, how could I stand? He called my heart, then cleansed it so. The price he paid for blood must flow. The sun on high, a king made flesh. His death for man, so he could bless. A God, a man, one and the same. Through death was death that he did tame. What cord of death could hold him down and keep him from his godly crown? The father, the son, they knew it all. The price to pay for our great fall. The work he did, his blood would flow. So pure was he, it made us glow. So now I stand and heed his call to be his servant and speak to all. Remember this last stanza. So now I stand, so now I stand and heed his call to be his servant and speak to all. To tell the truth that washes stain his love for us. Did ever reign. Remember that last stanza. I'm going to read it again. So now I stand and heed his call to be his servant and speak to all. It's our responsibility to speak to all, to tell the truth that washes stain. His love for us does ever reign. It's our responsibility. So can I leave you with this final thought? I'll leave you with this final thought as we prepare to go. God's sovereignty does not absolve us of our responsibility. We still are responsible in God's redemptive plan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy, for your love, for your peace that passeth all understanding. We magnify you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for your way. Thank you for your love for us and for giving us Jesus that we might be seen as righteous in your sight. We praise you. We thank you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.